All right, ladies and gentlemen, today I'm joined by Wania Chibo, who was a participant in Alone Season 6, and she is the owner of Buckskin Revolution, super interesting woman, and welcome to the show, Wania. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. What have you been up to lately? Oh my goodness, I've been up to far too much. <laughs> But I've been um, I've been putting together some online courses and working on instructional videos on my YouTube channel and um, also writing a couple of books and trying to fit in as much wilderness time between all of those projects as I can, which sometimes looks like a lot. And then I get really backed up and have to do a lot of computing and sometimes looks like a good blend. There's a pretty stark contrast between a YouTube channel and brain tanning a deer hide. So how do you bring all that together? <laughs> you know, it's so funny because, you know, if anyone had asked me two years ago if I would ever be doing skills online, I would have told them they were crazy. But then after doing the alone show, you know, I got all of this camera training in order to be out there by myself filming everything I was doing. So I gained, you know, a level of comfort with the filming process. But then, of course, within, you know, a year and a half of that, coronavirus happened and all of a sudden I couldn't teach courses in person anymore. So it's kind of been the perfect storm in terms of thrusting me into the high-tech world, even though I'm a person coming from Stone Age skills and ancestral skills background. So, you know, it's a little weird, but I'm rolling with it because it's what the times are calling for. Well, it seems really natural when you describe it that way, because in, you know, in a wilderness living situation, you have to be opportunistic. So you've find out what's available to you and then find the best and most uses for that. And since you have this camera training and, and this newfound foothold in this technological world, then that's working out really well to help you kind of spread the message for some of these, you know, more, uh, some of these older skills, I guess you could say. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, so much of my passion is about sharing them with as many people as possible. And the newer technologies and YouTube and online courses and all, obviously, I can get it to a lot more people than I could in person. So, you know, it's a it's a different thing. And I will never it'll never replace teaching in person for me or, you know, being out in the woods without cameras and phones and recording devices. But um, but yeah, it is it is actually really working in uh, feel like it's really doing what my main aim is, is which is to inspire and empower as many people with these skills as possible. And you are an inspiring person. I mean, we, we watched you undergo some, some almost cruel um, situations that, that just felt like they would be devastating or crushing or impossible to most people. But if we just zoom out a little bit, we realize that this is the way people lived for, forever until very recently. That's exactly it. You know, I feel like a lot of people take, you know, alone and shows like this and want to make it into this super extreme thing. And, oh, it's so amazing. And, oh, you're such a badass. And it's like, no, I'm doing exactly what I evolved to do. And it's actually very, very recent human history that we weren't all living this way. So I'm always trying to remind people that it's not actually all of that, you know, amazing or different or extreme. And we all have this capacity. It's just a matter of finding it in ourselves and learning some skills and having the drive to do it. But that said, you were put in a situation that 
that nobody was ever put in as a, as, as a historical human being, because you're only allowed to bring a handful of items. You're, you're confined to an area, not necessarily of your choosing. Definitely. And yeah. Yeah, so you've absolutely. got a lot of disadvantage and you've got to lug all this camera equipment, these tripods and all this <laughs> trash and gear around. Yeah, which is different than your average survival situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that way it's very true. You know, we had a limited range and we didn't have choice over our range and where I was happened to be a very game poor area. Um, and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't leave in pursuit of game and more resources. And also, you know, we were dropped right at the start of winter in the Arctic without any food stores and without any background of that area. And without a human community. So in that way, it is very different <laughs> than my ancestors experience. But it's along the same lines, you know, um, and more similar than I feel like, you know, than, than modern life, certainly. And, and to me, the extra, the challenging parts just made it more of a poignant experience of being more in line with, with ancestral ways of being. How far were you allowed to go from where you were dropped off? You know, you don't ever know because you don't, it's not like you have a map of the area nor an idea of the exact perimeters. So you're just dropped there and you can go a ways. And if you go too far, then you'll get a beep on the GPS device that you're required to have on you all the time. So my range might have been, I mean, I went, I would say um, I did hit my boundary once and I was probably at least two miles from where my home you know, my, my house there was. Um, so, you know, maybe I had as much as four square miles, but I never really explored all of it because it was hard terrain. And when you're in a situation where you're, you know, starving the whole time, you really have to think about whether it's worth doing long ranging adventures. You know, if there's not a pretty good chance of food at the other end, then it's not a wise choice in that kind of situation to really plumb the depths of your location. Sure. And if you make it four or five miles from home and shoot a moose or muskox or something like that, you have a lot of work ahead of you and tremendous calorie burn and risk in getting back. You For know, sure. a lot of hunters get hurt bad during pack outs and that's in yeah. a controlled situation where they've got a pack that's designed for it and probably a buddy with them and trekking poles and, and a lot of these luxuries that you just didn't have. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That said, man, I would have been thrilled to get a moose, even if it was four miles. I don't think that I, I, I probably had four square miles, but I didn't have four miles in any one direction. So you know, Got but it. I, I don't know where within my zone my camp was. Um, but yeah, I would have I would have been happy to have the hardship of hiking a moose four miles back and forth. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so did I'm, I'm curious about the, the logistics of it from a from a hunter's perspective. Did they buy some tags for you guys ahead of time? You know, did they buy you a bear tag and a muskox tag and a moose tag? Or how did that work? Were you on tribal lands? Yeah, that's a great question. So, yes, we were on tribal lands. So it was a different situation. But we did have tags set up. I think the situation was, well, if we got... We were so we we got a beaver tag, a moose tag, a bear tag, and a muskox tag. And I don't know if it actually beavers needed a tag, but we were allowed one beaver. Um, 
And if we got those animals, then they called in and got our tag brought out to us. So it wasn't like we went in with a tag for sure. Um, and I don't know how, you know, because it was tribal land, it was a, it was a agreement with the tribe. So I don't know how that would work differently than had we been on crown land, which is kind of the equivalent of, of national forest in the U.S. So what was the deal with the wolverine? Because wolverines aren't crazy hard to trap. And obviously that was a situation where, where Jordan was kind of defending his, his food stores, but mm-hmm. was he supposed to be able to kill that thing? We were not allowed to trap Wolverine. We were allowed to shoot one with a bow, but a bow was the only way um, that we were allowed to take them. Well, I guess in his situation, an ax, I mean, he shot it first, but um, right. we were allowed. So, so in terms of big game, we had tags for bear, moose, and muskox. We were allowed one beaver. We were allowed one wolverine, but we could not do anything but shoot it. And we were not allowed any other fur bears. Um, so all predators were off limits besides the Wolverine. Um, and then we had kind of daily limits on, on a bunch of the, the birds and the small game, but, um, those were pretty, pretty unlimited functionally. Now snaring a beaver with. And we weren't allowed to snare beaver. Oh, you weren't allowed to snare it. The, um, beaver, we, I think we had to shoot. I'm trying to think. Yeah. Oh, that's tough. I don't remember. You know, honestly, I didn't have snare wire out there, so I don't know for sure because I didn't think. No, I remember trying to think of how I could possibly snare one with fishing line. So maybe I'm wrong about that and we were allowed to snare beaver. But my understanding is that on season seven, they weren't allowed beaver at all. Okay. No one on my season did get a beaver. So that's part of why I don't know. And I didn't, I saw a beaver sign, but the beaver in my area were all on an island. So my first opportunity at beaver was after freeze up, at which point they were very deeply snugged away in their den. And yeah, wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Tearing apart a lodge where you've got, you know, the, the base of it frozen down into the water is basically impossible. You're not going to be able to get in there. Yeah, I did get to the lodge and it was huge logs and it was all packed in with clay. And even if I had, I mean, and this was way, I was like day 70 or so. So I was pretty wasted and the amount of calories I would have used. And besides the beaver would have been out and, you know, away under the lake in no time anyway. So it wouldn't have served to try to bust into the lodge. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, snaring them is is really tough because even if you snare a beaver with, uh, you know, a commercially made cable, they spin so bad, you know, they can twist off the cable. And we had 22 gauge wire. That was all we were allowed was single strand wire, 22 gauge. So you would have had to cord a huge thick thing in order to get a beaver, you know, to be strong enough. And then it would have been really stiff and might not have closed. So yeah, it would have been pretty tough. That would have been super tough. Yeah. Did you have any opportunities at big game? Oh, no, no. I didn't have any big game in my area. I was out in the woods with a moose call all the time, but they didn't show that because it didn't amount to anything. Um, But uh, I saw tracks when I was first there and I saw... I saw scat, but it was really old. And I saw a lot of browse, but it was from from earlier years. I mean, it was, there was no fresh browse or fresh sign. Um, the tracks were along the, the shoreline north of my area. And, um, I only saw those 
old tracks, nothing that was fresh when, from when I was on the ground. They showed me, there was actually one really frustrating part on the show. They, they showed me scouting for moose and pointing out some antlers that were really old and, and chewed up by rodents. And then they show me saying, look, see this pile of fresh chewed alder branches and see this path out to the water, which was beaver sign. And I was explaining that it was beaver sign and how beaver will make a pile of alder branches. But they edited that into the footage of me talking about the moose as if I was saying that moose clip off piles of branches and leave them there next to the shore, which is ridiculous if you know anything about moose and beaver. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's frustrating. And, you know, you're handing over, you know, hundreds of hours of, of video and they're kind of trying to make this story. Do you feel like they, they tried to be true to, to your experience and who you were for the most part? I mean, obviously that's an example where they totally, you know, made you look like you didn't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, honestly, I have a lot of frustrations with, with their editing. Um, I, I feel like there were mostly the core of who I am came through. There was one thing that they edited um, that they really shifted and kind of put words into my mouth by pasting together some sentences that is really frustrating for me. And that was, um, they showed me, so, so what they do is they have interviews with you, both before you go out and after. And then when they come out for medical checks, they kind of ask you to narrate some of the things that, um, that have been going on. And then they use those as voiceovers. Um, so it looks as if you're saying it at the time, but it isn't. And mostly those are things that one really said and would say. There were a couple of mine that weren't. Like they had me say that I've never had enough money to eat well, and that's why I'm here. And I think that if you compare that with most of the rest of the footage of me and the things I'm saying and doing and the energy of me, that feels really inconsistent. And it's, and it is, it's not true. Certainly the money was not why I was there and being so destitute that I don't have enough food has never been true for me. And putting those together as if I was so hungry that I couldn't eat unless I did the survival show to try to win $500,000 is like laughably untrue and incredibly frustrating to have me presented to the world that way. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. That definitely played off as synthetic and like this hunger games vibe, but they were, they were drumming up the, the poverty role for a lot of people, whether that was real or not. But that, that definitely was an undertone of the entire season. Yeah. And the truth is that I have always lived well below the poverty line by my own choosing because I've always chosen a life of freedom and, you know, living for a living rather than working for a living. So, you know, growing food and hunting and gathering and teaching skills and, you know, traveling around and doing that rather than having a full time job. So it's true that I've lived with not very much money, but that's always been my choice. And I've always had a lot of wild foods and homegrown foods and amazing food in my life, just not the fanciest, you know, best food from the most expensive grocery stores. So there are elements of truth in what they said. And yet the way they spun it was really not true. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, I have a question for you. You know, a lot of what I do is hunting professionally. A lot of what I do is, is guiding hunters and, while I messed around with tanning as a kid, which was an utter and complete failure, it's <laughs> nothing I've ever tried to do as an adult. And, and I don't know any hunters who actually 
pack hides, uh, you know, out of the woods, especially if they're in a situation where they have to quarter up an animal or debone an animal to get it out. Right. Um, so if that animal's not coming out whole, they they tend to leave the hides out there. Totally. Yeah. What are some practical things that people can be doing with these hides? And if, if they can't, if they don't have the capacity to carry out a full elk hide, which is pretty darn heavy, mm-hmm. you know, can, can they be cutting out part of it and then, you know, bringing back a section of it to do something with? Wow, that's a great question. Um, generally speaking, I mean, there are a lot of things you can do. I mean, you could fashion the hide into into a bag of sorts to help you pack out the meat as a way to, you know, make it make it usable um, to get stuff out. Generally speaking, hides are easiest to tan and easiest to work with in whole form. Um, I mean, you certainly can have a hide to make it easier to pull out, but then if, if you do so, I would recommend cutting it across the spine rather than along the spine like they do with you know like cow hides you buy sides of cow hides split down the spine but that makes it a lot harder to work with because when you're particularly if you're wanting to make garments with it you want to position the garment so that the spine is running parallel to your spine in the garment and having you know the parallel parts of the garment. So like each sleeve from the same part of the hide. So if you're, you know, packing out just a quarter hide, then you don't have anything to match that with. So it really depend on what you want to do for just bags or moccasins or belts or straps. Then sure, just, you know, a quarter of a hide would, would be usable in which case I would definitely recommend a rump section. So like a back quarter, not a front quarter. Um, Oh really? mm -hmm. A little bit thinner? No. Uh, well, the neck is incredibly thick. Rumps are pretty thick, but um, there's more usable hide there. The, the back end is more um, uniform. The front is smaller. You know, the front shoulders are a lot smaller. And so you're going from pretty thin armpit and belly hide to the spine, which is pretty thick, and then the neck. So that whole section is um, it's a lot of really, really drastically different hide, which makes it hard to use. Whereas the rump section is going to be a lot more consistent because the rump is thick and tough as the spine is thick and tough and it's wider back there. So that's, if I, if I was going to choose one quarter of a hide to bring out, that's what I would do. Gotcha. That makes sense because there is a huge contrast, especially on, on a bull elk or, or buck deer or something between, like their their withers in their neck, mm-hmm. and then as soon as you get down into the ribs into the belly, that hide gets thin really quickly. So belly is super thin. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, th- you know, for something as big as an elk, but the thing with elk is that elk skin is very very thick, but it's not super strong for its thickness. Deer is way stronger for its thickness because it has smaller fibers. Elk, it's like a deer hide magnified. So all of the fibers are bigger and all of the spaces between the fibers are bigger. So it's actually, um, it's, it's actually weaker in a lot of the areas. So interesting. Yeah. But small elk, that isn't as true of small elk and young elk are going to be more equivalent to deer and cow elk would be my choice for working with elk hide because as you say, bull elk are just so darn big and thick and tough and heavy. So it's like way, way harder to tan an elk skin for a product that isn't as usable as a deer skin for most people. Well, one of the things that is going on, um, with, within hunters these days is they're having a a hard time explaining the feelings that they have when they kill an animal. Mm. And one of the things that, that I really 
enjoy it about the show is watching people's just unadulterated, unedited emotions when they're hungry and they walk up on, you know, a, a dead bunny in a snare. Mm-hmm. And yeah. hunters feel that. Like we all feel that. For sure. for human history, when you when you get to kill an animal, you walk up on it and it's like, I get to survive now. Like my family gets to eat. I get to live longer because of this success. And there's a great complexity of emotions that goes with that. There's happiness. There's, you know, just so many emotions that I, that I couldn't even possibly name. And you, you get to see that um, without without any pretense on, on the show. But if you watch a hunting show, for example, people are trying to mask what they're feeling um, in a way that they feel like is politically correct or right. or, or whatever. So what can you maybe describe better, better than I can, what it feels like when you're really hungry and you walk up on a dead bunny? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the difference I would say is that, yeah, I, I totally hear you and that, you know, hunting, you feel that sense of success and that you get to eat and that you get to carry on and you get to provide, but it's also, it's a bit of a projection, right? It's a, it's that idea of that, but it's not actually true for the vast majority of people because the vast majority of hunters, if they don't get their elk or their deer or whatever it is, there's still a grocery store. Yeah. They're going to go console themselves at McDonald's. Exactly. So when it's actually the difference between eating for the next week or however many weeks and not eating at all, and you know what it's like to not eat at all for a week because you haven't for the last two weeks, which was my situation. You know, when I got that grouse, I had not had a bite of meat. I had had nothing but berries. I had had a little bit of pemmican because I did bring a pemmican as one of my items, but by a little, I'm talking about like a teaspoon to two teaspoons every two or three days. So basically I was not eating for two weeks. And then when I got that grouse, I mean, my whole body lit up like, you know, I'm weeping, you know, with just not even like, it's not exactly joy. It's not exactly, it's just like overwhelming emotion. So the sense of emotion knowing that you are about to eat food when you haven't for so long, it's undescribable, really. There's no way, I think, to really understand that unless you've ever been that hungry. And, you know, I was actually just filming um, a discussion about the current season of Alone. And, you know, even if you've been really hungry, if you've done fasts, you know, people do two or three week fasts, but usually in that case, they're changing their physical activity. There's not much else expected of them, right? They are fasting and that's what they're doing. Whereas out there, you are building your cabin. You are hauling your firewood. You are doing everything you need to get through the winter in an extreme survival situation as well as fasting. And so, yeah, there's just not very many people in the world today, certainly in North America, um, that experience that kind of hunger. And um, yeah, I mean, you'll never feel more gratitude in your life and your food will never be anywhere near as amazing (laughs) you know, boy, I tell you what I had one day I had, they didn't show this. I wish they had, but I had about six grubs that were maybe the size of the white part at the tip of my pinky fingernail. They were like, you could barely see them tiny. And this was during the period of two weeks without any food at all. And the flavor of those grubs and the feeling of what was essentially like less than an eighth of a teaspoon of food was amazing. My whole body lit up, you know, 
most people are never going to experience that amount of hunger that would make that amount of grubs so delicious and satisfying. <laughs> and, and there's good and bad with that. Like there's, there's some kind of a loss for us as a society that, that we don't get to experience that portion of the spectrum of emotions. But it's also great that, you know, a lot of people don't ever have to and, and aren't forced into a situation where they're really desperate with hunger. When I was growing up here on the Sixth Ranch, you know, we, we were on, on hard times for sure, but we were raising cattle and selling cattle for beef, but we definitely needed that income from the beef. So we, we never ate beef. We were eating deer and elk. And when I was a little kid and I, I shot the the first deer that I killed, it, it was huge for me. And it wasn't any kind of like a masculine chest thumping, like, oh, I'm, you know, growing up now I'm, I just killed something. It was like, how cool is it that I get to provide something for my family to eat as a little kid? Yeah. Like it was awesome. That was a huge feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's just say that, uh, that this fall I go out and I shoot an elk with my bow and I recover it. And I'm like, yep, I definitely can carry an extra, you know, 25 or 30 pounds. So I'm going to split this hide and take it from, you know, the, the ribs to the tail and, and bring this home. What do I do now? <laughs> well, I mean, it depends what you're after, what you want to make with it, certainly. But, um, but you know, this is what I want to make. I'll, I'll tell you. Tell me. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm always looking for some quiet footwear that'll keep rocks and thorns out of my feet that I can sneak up on something. Um, cause I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm not all that stealthy, so I need every <laughs> advantage I can get. Um, so, you know, if I was going to make, you know, you know, light, lightweight pair of moccasins that would help me be quiet, but still protect my feet. Mm -hmm. Um, if I was going to try and slip up on a mule deer or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you would want to get that, get that hide out. So ideally how you're going to work with a hide starts before you even get it off of the animal, because most hunters cut the crap out of the hides as they're skinning the animal and you really don't need to. So, um, I was just doing a, a deer, a roadkill with, uh, with a friend this weekend. And, you know, I do the initial cuts I do around the neck and down the midline of the animal and out each limb and around the anus and around the feet. And then I set my knife down and I barely use my knife. And I have a small knife, not a great big curved hunting knife because the bigger your knife and the fancier a skinning or hunting knife you have, the more tempted you are to use that to cut the hide off of the animal. Ideally, you want to get just enough to get a good handhold on that hide, and then you're using your fist and you're pushing your fist down right at the junction between the membrane and the hide, and you're, you're pushing and pulling the hide off of the animal. So that is going to make a huge difference in the usability of the hide. So, so you're, you're going in the direction of the hair. You're going from head to tail. I do. Yep. So I like to hoist animals to skin them. I do the initial cuts on the ground or just the neck cut sometimes on the ground and then get them up. And so, yeah, I always hang from the neck rather than from the back legs for a couple of reasons. Um, one, that's, that's, you know, you're, as you say, you're kind of going with the grain of the hair and it's easier that way. But also there's that fell muscle, the twitch muscle that's really hard not to have come off on the hide. You, you know, the muscle I'm talking about, the really thin. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yep, totally. it is easier to leave that on the hide if you get 
it starts kind of right behind. I'm like showing on my body, even though there's no video here, but you get right behind the shoulder blades. And if you can get behind that muscle and leave it on the carcass, then you're going to get a way cleaner skinning job. And that's a lot easier to do going down. Also, I like to hang them that direction because then everything is pointed down towards the guts and towards the anus. So the guts can come out and they're not smearing past all of your meat. Whereas, you know, if you're hanging from the back legs, then you have to kind of hoist the guts up and out of the rib cage. Um, but yeah, so if you can get behind that fell muscle and leave it on the carcass, then you have a really clean hide. It's going to be lighter. It's not going to have any cuts. It's not going to have any blood or flesh on it. So it's going to make every other part of the process a lot easier, including hauling it. You might be more inclined to haul the hide out if it doesn't have, you know, a bunch of meaty bits or the fell muscle on it. Um, and the warmer they are, the easier it is to pull that off. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Skinning a cold animal or a partially frozen one, which I have certainly done, is not super easy. <laughs> have yeah. you ever used an air compressor? <laughs> no. <laughs> you, do you know about that? I, I do. Yeah. I'm pretty low tech, but yeah. Sure. Have you done it? I have. Um, I, I've done it on a, on a couple elk just to see if it would... Uh, if it would help, help the experience. And I just happened to have an air compressor inside the shop where I was, where I was cleaning, cleaning this bowl out. And I was like, Oh, I'll try it. So I, I cut holes, uh, at the nape of the neck and then at, uh, at all four legs and they puff up really big and get a little bit cartoonish and it's kind of <laughs> weird. And then if you, if you touch them, um, they get all kind of crackly. Um, right. it feels like, yeah. like little bubble wrap in there, which yeah. is weird. That happens on, on roadkill, like things that, that wait, you know, that you don't get to skin right away. That happens too. Like as the, the, just the breakdown process happens, it produces some gas and they'll fill up with that, like crackly bubble wrap feeling <laughs> pretty weird. Yeah, It is super weird, but, uh, yeah, it, they definitely skin a lot better. And I prefer, you know, if I have the opportunity, I definitely prefer to pull hides off, even if I'm not doing anything with them rather than, than cutting them because it is, it is that much more efficient and that much safer. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're not slicing up your meat. You know, if you leave the fell muscle on and then you're hanging it for a while, that fell muscle is going to dry down and yellow jackets and flies can't get through it versus if the meat's all slashed up, those are all places for flies to lay their eggs and critters to feel like they're an open invite. And, and a hot tip for people is if you do have a bunch of yellow jackets around when you're working on an animal and you're out in the woods, um, cut off a couple little sacrificial pieces of meat and and throw those ten yards or so away. Yeah. And you know, believe it or not, those those insects don't want to be around you, so they'll they'll go over <laughs> there, and then you're less likely to get to get stung while you're working on your critter. Yeah, great tip. Okay, so I've peeled this hide off, and I've been good, and I haven't used my knife any more than I need to, and I don't have. Um, any excess muscle attached to it. Um, I'm going to put it skin to skin and roll it up and put it in my pack and, and take it out. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm packing the head out too. So I've got the, the brains in there, mm -hmm. which, which I assume we're going to end up using. Yep, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to get that out and then you want to find a nice rounded beam. So a log or half of a log. I often use a piece of PVC pipe because it's really lightweight and easy to use and it's not going to crack if I leave it out in the rain. But so you want a rounded beam 
and you're going to start by fleshing it. And ideally, if you've skinned it really well, there should be almost no work in the fleshing it. But but often there's a little bit of fat clinging, um, even if you did skin it well, you know, depending on where you are and the season. Um, so you want to get all of the fat off. And I like to flesh really well before I start to get the hide ready for scraping. And what you're doing to prepare a hide for scraping is you're doing something that's going to allow the layers of glue that glue the top layer of the hide, the shiny surface that we call the grain layer, um, to the middle of the hide, which is called the dermis. What we're after in brain tanning is just the dermis, and um, that's what's going to give you the, the lovely soft moccasins. So there are basically two ways to prepare that hide. You can either soak it in an alkaline solution and let the, the chemicals of the alkaline solution, whether that be wood ash or lye or hydrated lime, break down those glues a little bit. Or you can soak them just in water and actually let some bacteria grow on it. And then the bacteria are going to break down those glues because they'll eat those glues first, essentially. So you soak it until the hair starts slipping out of the follicle. So basically that means you grab some hair and give it a good tug. And you shouldn't have to tug too hard before that hair starts coming out in your fingers. And that's how you know that it's ready for the next stage, which is scraping. How long should that take, more or less? It's a great question, and there are so many variables. How big and thick the hide is um, is a variable. You know, the, the bigger and thicker hide, the longer it takes. Temperature is huge. So um, the warmer temperature, the faster it goes. Uh, whether it's moving water or stagnant water, because obviously moving water, the bacteria are going to be getting washed off, so it's going to take them longer to do their job. So lots of factors, but usually three to five days for the water soak. And the water soak is going to be a little bit more temperature dependent than the, we call it bucking when you use an alkaline solution. But yeah, three to five days is kind of the good, the good rule of thumb for either process. Okay. And then when you're fleshing, do you use a, a fleshing bar or do you use an antler? What's your go-to with that? Okay, great question. So I do, all of the hide work that I do is the wet scrape technique. So that's why, you know, throwing a hide over a beam as opposed to putting a hide in a frame and working the flesh off with a tool like that. So it'd be a different tool depending on what you use. But I use just my my scraping, scraping beam or my... Um, my hide scraper for fleshing as well. And what that is, is just a flat piece. You know, they sell things called fleshing knives and you can get them from a lot of trapping companies and those are often curved. And I really don't like a curved fleshing knife. I prefer just a straight scraper. And that is something that you can make really easy. Um, if you have any kind of mills around you, lumber mills, you use planer blades that they're what is in, um, these huge planing mills, mills to go from rough cut lumber to, you know, the dimensional lumber that we're familiar with. So there are these huge wheels studded with all of these long, sharp blades, and they have to switch those out regularly because as soon as they dull, they're no good for planing, but they're perfect for hide scrapers. So that's what oh, I that's mean, a, just a great tip. Beam. Yeah. Um, people also sometimes use draw knives, but I really don't like draw knives. They tend to be too sharp. They tend to have a little bit of a curve and the handles are in a really awkward position. So way better to just have a straight scraper. Yeah. The, the fleshing knife that I have for, um, for the things that I trap in the wintertime coyotes or whatever, looks a lot like a draw knife, but I use the dull side of it. So it has 90 degree edges on the dull side. Nice. Yeah. And that, that works well for me and, and I have it over a curved fleshing beam, but it is still 
a little bit awkward just because of the way the handles work exactly like totally. you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So having those straight handles is really helpful. And gotcha. what a lot of people do is just some rubber hose on either side of the planer blade. And then okay. quick, quick and dirty, easy, you know, low cost scraper. You can also buy fancy ones. You can do carbon steel ones, or you can make them yourself with just bar stock from a hardware store and make some nice handles on there. So you can get as fancy as you want. But, um, but yeah, the, the issue that a lot of people have, and I'm glad you said that, but a lot of people use the sharp end and just end up cutting their hide to ribbons. So you really need a dull scraper. It should not be capable of slicing into your hide. And it's such a bummer when it'll inevitably when you're almost done and you you look and you're like, oh, there's a little bit of fat right there and you go to get it. And the next thing you're looking at at hair and it's like, oh, what have I done? Yeah. 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 Happens to the best of us for sure. But yeah, it's definitely a bummer. Okay. So we we're we're done with fleshing and now we need to scrape some hair off. Mm hmm. So it's not actually just the hair. It's the hair and the top layer of skin that you're removing for brain pain. Okay. Um, so that's what we call the grain or the epidermis. Those are slightly different, but a lot of people just lump them both together. Um, so you're going to be... It takes a lot of force, and it's really important to line your hide up with the hair going parallel to your to your scraping beam. So you're going to be scraping in the direction of the hair, just like we talked about with skinning. And um, you're taking off the hair and that top layer of hide. It's the the waterproof layer on our skin, that shiny layer. So like grain layer, boot, boot leather and belt leather and that kind of thing. It's that layer that you're taking off. And that's going to take a fair amount of force. And it's definitely um, tricky as a beginner to know when you've got it all off because there will be there are a lot of layers to it sometimes so that you can get that shiny part off and then they'll still be kind of deeper layers. We call it subsurface grain, but you want to do as good a job as possible at scraping thoroughly all of the grain layer off of the hide. And then you need to turn it over and go back over the flesh side because there's a thin layer of membrane that you can't scrape off when the hair is on the hide because the hair pads it so your scraper can't get a good grip. So you'll think that you fleshed really thoroughly and then once the grain and hair are off, you turn it around and there's more to scrape off. Um, I feel like I know what the answer is going to be to this question, but if you ever fleshed with a pressure washer? (laughs) No, I haven't. (laughs) I did it uh, once last year um, on a river otter because I'd seen some videos of it and otters are just a greasy nightmare. All, all mustelids are super greasy. And all aquatic animals, beaver are the same way because they have yeah. to be, you know, to be swimming in the water all day. So, you know, I was fleshing this thing and it was just like ribbons of grease coming off every single time. I'd have to clean the bar off on every single pass. I was like, this isn't, this is just never going to happen. So I ran down a to a different place and got out a pressure washer and I pressure washed it. And it, it's the most beautiful fleshing job I've ever done in my life. It's just gorgeous. So I'm wondering (laughs) if, if it actually takes off that layer that you're talking about or not, probably not. Uh, it's hard to say, you know, because it wouldn't be dependent on, you know, the, the squish on the, the fleshing beam. So maybe it's possible, but it, without seeing it, it's hard to know. I mean, I have sure. heard about people taking off the grain using pressure washers. So if it has, they can take off the grain, that's a tremendous amount of pressure. They could probably take off the membrane in one go too. 
but we're we're going to pretend like that's not a possibility. So we're yeah, using a yeah. good good amount of force, <laughs> and we're using our scraper scraper bar, and uh, and then taking off that grain. How do you know when you're deep enough? So it's a distinct layer. The grain is, you know, it, you get to a point where you're not in grain anymore, and you hit dermis. And how you know is. Well, it's a learned thing. It's a muscle memory thing. And it's, there's a lot of different factors. So for me, the feel of my scraper on the hide is one indicator because the grain feels slicker and there'll be the, the dermis has a different type of grip and grit. It's also a sound. I can hear the sound. It's going to be grittier sounding on the dermis than the grain. I'm going to be looking for it. But this is one of the hardest parts of brain tanning is knowing when you've actually got all of the grain off. What I tell people is go back over the whole thing. And if you're not getting anything off, then you've probably gotten it. But it also could just be that you're not pressing hard enough. That's totally a thing. But once you've gotten all of the grain off, it's going to be a smooth, uniform layer of dermis that you're looking at versus if there's any little blips or raised spots or patches that look weird, that's probably still some grain on there. And most beginning hide tanners leave some grain on their hides in the learning process. So then what happens? So then, so that's when you would turn it over and do the membrane on the flesh side. So the membraning is the final step and that takes way less pressure than the grain. After you've grained a hide, membraning is like a treat because it goes so fast and easy. Then you are ready for the next stage, which is the braining of the hide, which we call dressing because you can use things besides the brains. I often use egg yolks because often I'm getting hides from, from hunters where I don't have access to the brain. Um, so the, what's unique about brains or egg yolks is that they are fats. They're very, very fatty, right? But they are a fat that dissolves in water whereas most fats rise on the surface of water, right? They don't mix in. So what we're after is fats that will dissolve in water. So then we can soak the hide in that and the water will pass through the hides, bringing some of the fat with it and leaving those in the middle of the hide. So what we want is to get the whole center of the hide really well saturated with the fats. And that looks like taking the, the brain and blending it really well with water. So if you have access to a blender, that's a great way to do. And then adding enough water for the hide to float in it pretty well. So, you know, depending on the size of the hide, that looks like a couple gallons of water often. So how many, how many egg yolks are we talking here? I usually use a dozen egg yolks for a medium sized deer hide or for even a large deer hide. So yeah, yeah kind of pretty, makes pretty it doable. Yeah, totally. Um, and then I also like to add a little bit of extra oil because egg yolks aren't as fatty as brains. So a little extra oil and then often a little bit of like a Dr. Bronner's soap or a Castile soap just to help break up those fats further into solution. Um, and then you're going to soak the hide in it and squish it all around and massage it and work it and pull and stretch the hide and do everything you can to force that dressing through the hide so that it's all the way through, not just on the surface. And then are you like running it over a double bitted axe or how, how are you actually forcing it down in there? So it's a process. Generally what I do is I soak the hide for a while and then I take it out and then I wring the hide. So I throw it over a, a beam or a bar um, that's horizontal and then I 
it's hard to describe without visuals, but I make it into a loop. So I like throw it over and overlap it several times and roll it up so it's a big loop. And then I put another stick in it and then I ring, ring, ring the hide. So I twist the bottom stick into a big spiral and that rings the solution through. And then I'm catching that in a bucket and that's pulling and stretching the fibers and forcing that dressing through the middle of the hide in order to wring it out. And I end up doing that several times. And that is okay. what's really helping do it. You can work the hide. I mean, I wouldn't use a double bitted axe exactly because, I mean, I would I would use a stake in the ground that has a, a bevel that looks kind of like an axe. But if, it, if I was going to use an axe, I would just make sure that it was very dulled because a sharp right. axe, again, you would slice right through it. But something sure. like that. But ideally, it would be set stationary in the ground so that I could use my body weight to push on it rather than using the tool and moving the tool and having the hide stationary. You can do that. You just have to have it in a frame. But um, but then it's a pain in the butt to be lacing it into a frame and then taking it down and dressing it again and then working it. So I just do it all by hand. Well, the ringing part of it sounds pretty fun, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work. I mean, it's a serious workout, but it is very satisfying. Okay. So then what do we do? So then once you're sure that you've got the hide really well dressed, then it's time to work it soft. So basically the reason why we're using these fatty solutions is we're trying to lubricate the fibers so that they're slippery enough to slide past each other. The hide itself is full of all of these glues. And if the hide just sits there and dries, then it'll be totally hard. And that's how we have rawhide. But what we're trying to do is to keep the fibers constantly moving past one another as it dries so they can't stick together with those glues. And then by the time it's dry, then, you know, dry glue isn't sticky anymore. So then you have this beautiful, soft, fluffy hide. So that looks like a lot of work the whole time the hide is going from wet to dry. And that's where you would be working it over a stake, working it over a cable, pulling and stretching it in your arms. I sometimes stand on it and stretch it between my hands and my feet. I throw it over my knees and wrench my knees apart to stretch it. So just constantly working every part of the hide as it's drying. And that's that's the stage we call softening. And then after it's softened, are we ready to cut it into a pattern and make it into whatever it's going to become? You could do, but if it ever gets wet, then it will turn back into rawhide. So the final stage in the tanning process is smoking. If you don't smoke the hide, then those glues stay intact and it can turn right back, you know, right back into rawhide. But the smoke kind of denatures the glues and it sets the softness in the hide so that it can get wet and dry without turning back into rawhide. Okay. And uh, the glues, like that's basically collagen, right? Uh, there's carbohydrates as well, but it is a lot. Yeah, it's, it's basically gelatin, which collagen is one component of gelatin. But yeah, hide glue and gelatin are kind of the same thing. Yeah, very, very interesting. Well, that's a cool process. And if somebody was ambitious and you know wanted to get the most out of their animal, I think that that's a really worthwhile project and, and something that you would look on fondly, especially after the amount of work that went into it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's so satisfying to use every part of an animal that you've taken and to be wearing clothes that you processed yourself. You know, it's, it's basically the only kind of, unless you're spinning and weaving yarn, it's the only material that you can wear that was never in a factory, you know, that never had any mechanized process. So that that's, that's pretty special for sure. 
And this isn't just academic. Like you rolled into the Arctic wearing a jacket that you'd made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm in a ton of other gear. I made as much of my gear as I possibly could. So buckskin pants, um, boots full like muckluck, home tanned leather with felt inner liners um, with beaver and buffalo fur. Um, and yeah, my like a several layer fur parka with felt and furs on the inside and buckskin on the outside. Um, all of my hats were were things that I spun the yarn and knit the hats and then um, lined with fur and felt that I had tanned. And uh, so, yeah, tons of the gear that I wore out there was was stuff that I had made myself. But the parka was definitely kind of like the piece de resistance. That was my my extra fancy, super awesome, super warm. Your mucklucks were pretty dope too. I appreciated those. <laughs> I think I was the only one who didn't have any issues with cold with my feet, actually. Yeah. Um, I can't remember exactly who it was, but it was one of the Arctic explorers um, heading to the to the North Pole, and he'd failed and was trying to pass uh, information on to the next guy that was trying. Mm. And his piece of advice was do exactly as the locals do. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So if you're wearing garb that's traditional to the indigenous people there, they've perfected that over a long time. Like that is the right tool for the job. Exactly. And so I really tried to model my gear after what the native people in the area would wear. I didn't have caribou skins, you know, so I didn't have all of the things that would be that would be most useful. But I was trying to replicate that with what I did have. Um, and yeah, the, the native system of the two layers, one with a fur to the inside and one with a fur to the outside is super, super key. But, um, with my footwear, that's what I was trying to do. So the, the issue with so much fancy gear and especially with fancy modern footwear is it tends to be really stiff. And when you get Arctic boots, you know, the colder you are, the more insulation they pack into them, which makes them stiffer. And then your feet can't move as well, which cuts your circulation. And then your feet get super cold because you don't have fresh blood flow. So I trade to make my boots, you know, oversized and roomy and comfortable so that I could my feet were actually moving and flexing with every step and it was my own motion and body heat that kept them warm and then just enough insulation to keep that in. So what counted as a survival item and and what didn't? Great question. Yeah. So our clothes were separate from survival items. We got a list of what we could take for clothes. So we got, you know, two sweaters, one parka, um, one wool or fleece shirt, two pairs of pants, you know, six pairs of socks. So that was all specified. So it was the same for everyone. But then, you know, you could take whatever you wanted within that. So most people brought, you know, like super insulated down parkas and I made the fur parka instead. Um and then it was so it was the other items that were survival items. Basically, everything else that we had was within our 10 items. The show provided one tarp that was not within our 10 items. Um, we got to take one toothbrush <laughs> and we got to take one photograph um, and one headlamp. And other than that, all of the things were within the 10, 10 items that we had to choose. And then as, as far as just batteries. Did you guys have a solar panel out there or were they swapping batteries out during med checks or how, how is that working? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they always swapped out batteries during med checks. We had a little, like a little um, anchor battery, you know, essentially a core battery that we could d- 
charge some of the batteries with, but uh, some of the batteries we couldn't recharge. And um, yeah, so early on before they were doing med checks, then we would do blind drops. They would basically leave a dry bag at the shore with fresh batteries for us. And we would leave our old batteries there and they would let us know when they were coming so that there was no contact, you know, so we wouldn't be actually interacting with them. Um, and then later for med checks, they would bring them out. But once it got really, really cold, you know, down well below zero, it was so intense because the batteries die incredibly quickly at those temperatures. Like I had like 15 minutes on a GoPro battery. And in fact, the GoPro was barely usable anyway, because they're in these little waterproof cases. And in those temperatures, they would just fill with condensation that would then freeze and they would be pretty useless. Um, and yeah, the camera batteries, the bigger camera batteries would be dead in half an hour. So you're going through batteries like crazy when it gets cold. Did you enjoy the filming part of it? Did, did that feel, you know, given a camera to talk to, did that feel like company at all or was it a burden or did it go back and forth? Yeah, it was both for sure. I mean, the truth is that like, you don't know what the show is going to be like before, before you go. And I, I'm an educator. That's my passion. That's what I do. And so I was really putting a ton of energy into filming and getting really good shots and artistic angles and good instruction. And none of that footage got used. So if I had known then what I know now, I would have put so much less effort into the filming. Um, you know, a huge amount of my time and energy and calories went into the filming between, you know, setting up all of the very best shots and then sometimes choosing my activities and what time I did the activities based on the filming. So like it would be way more efficient for me to do all of my skinning and cleaning of my animals in the evening in my shelter by the fire. But it's really hard to film and get good footage at that time. So I would do it during the daylight hours in order to get some good footage. But that wasted daylight hours that I could have been setting up more snares, you know. So tons of ways that it's a burden and it's heavy hauling big camera equipment and tripods and extra batteries everywhere you go all the time. There's a ton of calories burnt. That said, you know, I would have done a lot less of it, but it definitely was company like talking to the camera and knowing that you're sharing this experience with others is really different than being out there totally alone, knowing that no one is ever going to see it or know anything about it. So, you know, it's not exactly company because obviously it's not talking back, but it's something to engage with. And it's the sense of other people out there somewhere. So that, you know, I never felt lonely or isolated. And that's, you know, that's about a lot more than just the camera, but the camera is definitely a part of it. On the hunts that, that I do that are filmed, I always feel terrible for the, for the camera guy, because, you know, outside of like, you know, just what I need to survive, really all I'm carrying beyond that is a weapon. So, you know, bow, some arrows, rifle, some optics maybe, but all the batteries for a, a backcountry trip, you know, like last year we were in Colorado for 14 days above 10,000 feet. It was super cold, snowing a lot. And that the just the sheer weight and technology that the camera folks had to bring was was crippling. And you know, I I, I try to share that that burden with them as much as possible, but you know, they typically don't want to don't want to give it up in the same way that I <laughs> you know don't really want anybody else to carry a rifle. I would never let that happen. Right. Yeah. But the the gal that is on the podcast 
with me that um, that I published today, Jordan Bud, she's going to be filming uh, a mountain goat hunt with me this fall, cool. and she's been working out like crazy. And <laughs> you know, I know she's like completely raring to go and super tough. She's a ranch girl from Nebraska. And, uh, she would probably rather die than let me, um, carry camera equipment, but I'll definitely <laughs> do my best to take some of that from her. Yeah. Yeah. All that. It's super intense. And then, you know, also in my case and most people out there, you're starving while you're doing it. So yeah, yeah, it's a lot. And that's a lot of the stuff that the viewer doesn't ever really know on alone. You know, they don't get how intense it is to be doing all of that filming yourself while also experiencing the conditions we're in. How hard is it wondering um, and and presuming how other contestants are doing? You know, did you assume that you were doing better than them? Did you assume that they were doing better than you? Um, what was that that mental p- portion of the game like? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the truth is that I didn't. It no, it wasn't hard because you know I wasn't really out there for the competition. I was out there for the experience of it. And I wasn't, you know, like winning would have been great, but that wasn't my main objective at all. So in those regards, you know, it wasn't that important. It was more a curiosity and something to occupy my brain. It was interesting. It was like a fun challenge to try to figure out what was happening. But you're pretty far from everyone. You know, I never saw any evidence of anyone else. What I could see early on was I could see the boat way far across. I mean, this lake is huge. You know, that boat was a teeny little pinprick in the distance. Um, So I could see it going back and forth across the lake every once in a while. And then later on, when the lake was frozen over, I could hear the helicopters. And, you know, there were a lot of times that I thought I had figured out what was going on based on that. And when I came out, that wasn't true at all, because maybe it was them going out and filming B-roll or just taking a joyride in the helicopter, because those guys are stuck out there for weeks on end, too, because if we're still out there, then they're still out there. So, um, You know, it kind of there wasn't much point in trying to figure out what was going on with everyone because it wasn't going to change what I was doing. I was out there to be out there for as long as I could regardless. And, you know, our season, the season before us, which was the first season that had had any any really extreme um, location, that was Mongolia. And that season was decided on day 56. And day 56 felt I mean, I felt like I was just getting started by then. I didn't I was afraid that other people would be leaving and that I would have to go home before I wanted to, honestly. <laughs> I, I wanted to be out there as long as I could, regardless of what was going on with everyone else. But I kind of, you know, towards the end, I had a sense, I had a, a pretty good intuitive sense. And what I will say is when you're out for so long, just you and the, the natural world around you, your sense of intuition becomes so heightened. And so I did feel like there was a point at which I could kind of feel where I was at and what was going on with other folks. And I definitely had the sense toward the end that it was down to just me and a couple other folks. Um, And, you know, honestly, too, I felt like I could kind of tell that by how they engaged with me at medical checks. Um, And then by the end, they were bringing me, you know, like a big bag of a ton of batteries, whereas before I would just get a handful of batteries. So I was like, oh, there's lots of batteries to go around now because there's so few people out here, you know. So. Oh, nice. That's encouraging. Right. Yeah. So there were little clues. But um, yeah, I tried not to have what was going on with anyone else define my time out there or my experience. I feel like that was evident in the way they told your story. Nice. Yeah. Good. I hope so. That's great to hear. 
Now, something that came up in, in, in the way that, that this was edited several times was the importance of, of you doing this as a woman. W- was that true to what you're, what you're believing and, and why you're out there? Yeah, it was one of the things. I mean, I think I really talked a lot about the things I was representing um, as a larger group and being a woman definitely was one of them and inspiring other women. You know, there's this idea in our culture that women aren't as into being in the outdoors as men. But I feel like that's largely because young women usually aren't brought out to the outdoors like young boys are, you know. Um, so it's, there's this, this cultural idea that we don't like it. And I really want to represent something different and particularly want to encourage young girls to go out there and know what they're capable of. So yes, representing women is huge. And, you know, the field that I'm in is, is definitely a male dominated field. And so showing that that doesn't need to be the case was huge for me. I also talked a lot about representing the ancestral skills approach and representing the approach of, you know, connection to nature rather than antagonism with nature and talking about the, you know, the DIY and the low tech and the making my own gear approach. So there were a lot of things that I was wanting to represent and they talked more about representing women or, you know, they let the, the edits of me talking about that come through more than the other things. But yeah, no, it's definitely true that that was important to me. And, you know, and I made choices based on that too. Like I, I had a, we could bring two buffs and one of mine was something that I had made out of an old sweater and I got pretty skinny pretty fast so I could wear it as a skirt and I would wear a skirt around in some of the footage rather than my pants partly to be there as a woman and as a feminine woman because there's also this idea that yeah women can do this stuff but it's the more like butchy and masculine women that do it it's not the more feminine women and I really wanted to show no there's absolutely nothing about being a an outdoors person that is counter to femininity so I want to do this as a woman and as a feminine woman and letting my femininity be one of my strengths rather than this idea that it's a handicap, which I feel like is a really unfortunate cultural idea. Well, I think you did it and, and you kicked ass doing it. It was, uh, it was definitely cool to see. And I, I'm sure you had a huge impact on a lot of ladies out there and I haven't checked in on this in a couple of years, but I was at the, the national archery trade association show uh, a couple of years back. And at that time, the fastest growing segment within all of hunting was teenage archery girls. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. And I was like, sweet. That sounds great. Yeah. In, in archery, I, I love it. Like, you know, I, I, I love, I love rifles and shotguns and pistols. All that stuff is, is great with me. And if there was a, a blowgun only season, I would hunt with a blowgun. <laughs> I don't care. But, uh, but archery, you know, it's something you can do in your, basement or your backyard Mm -hmm. and you fire a bullet, it's gone. It's not coming back. You can't go over there and get it and shoot it again. And it's a lot easier to make your own bow than to make your own rifle also. (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) That's a really good point. I think, um, yeah, I would have as much success firing an arrow from a rifle as I would from a bow that I built, but, um, yeah, I would definitely (laughs) give it a try. Is there anything, uh, that was filmed that you're glad they didn't show? Mm, that's a great question. Um, yeah, actually I had, um, I had one time that I injured my thumb pretty good. You know, I would use the, I sharpened the back of my 
folding saw and I used that kind of like a machete. And there was a time that I was doing that to limb a tree and I didn't realize that the saw had opened and part of my thumb was between the blade and the handle. And so when I slammed down, it, it nailed my thumb. Pretty good, really bloody injury. And you know, I know that they've made a lot of the calamities and the injuries that people have had out there. And I really injured myself very little. But like Nikki, who was on my season, for example, she did all kinds of awesome stuff. And she injured herself a few times and they showed all of her injuries. And they kind of focus on that. And there are a lot of times when they they hype the drama and they show a lot of drama. And, you know, I actually had very little screen time, like until episode six or seven, I had way less minutes on screen, screen than anyone else in my season. And I think part of it is because I gave them very little drama to show. Yeah, you're doing too good of a job. Yeah, I was doing doing my thing and not having any issues. And I was totally starving. They could have focused on that. But I was very content. I was happy. I was adjusted and I wasn't making a big deal of the starving, you know, like none of it felt, it felt uncomfortable, but none of it felt that hard to me. And I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't feeling it in hard ways. And so what did they have to show? So, yeah, I'm glad that they didn't try to like make a big deal of, of any dramas that I had. Are there any, um, are there any gear items that you would swap out knowing what you know now? Sure. No, you know, knowing what I know now, I mean, I would never, ever, ever go into a place like that without snare wire now. Like that was a huge handicap for me. Huge. So were you snaring with parachute cord or with fishing line or with what were you snaring line. with? Yeah, with a combo. I mean, I was doing all, you know, powered snares. So spring poles and stuff. So I'd use paracord to tie the trees down. And then the noose itself was fishing line. Had I known that I was going to be in a spot with a foot water, you know, like my water was so shallow. You can see it on some of the zoom in shots of my location. I'm on a, I'm on a peninsula and the water is all light, light colored all around me. There's no deep water anywhere around me. So I had no chance at fish and, you know, had I known the location that I was going to be given and was able to choose accordingly, then I would have switched out snare wire for fishing line. But there was no way for me to know that until I was on the ground. So, you know, I think that I made good choices given what I knew going in. But for my location, man, I would give anything to switch out a <laughs> fishing line for snare wire. And, you know, a lot of people said, weren't you sorry that you didn't have an axe because I wasn't able to get through the ice once it was really, really thick. Um, but the truth is that all of my tools served me so well. It's possible that had I had an axe and not one of the other things I had, I wouldn't have been able to even be out there until freeze up. So, you know, I think that honestly, by the time that, the ice was as thick as it was at the end, which was like almost two feet. Even an axe would have been an incredible calorie expenditure to get through the ice. And I was already so physically wasted at that point. You know, I mean, it, it could have made a huge difference. Had I been able to get through the ice and, and do ice fishing, that would have been absolutely huge. And I knew that I was, you know, really getting pretty darn skinny. I lost 50 pounds out there and I'm only 5'4". So, you know, 50 pounds is a tremendous amount of my body weight. But, um, you know, I was really holding out for ice fishing, knowing that that could turn everything around for me and was the only thing really that could get me through the winter. Um, 
So not being able to get through the ice was a huge liability. But, you know, like any that's the thing when you only have 10 items any one thing that you chose to bring means that you wouldn't had have had some other thing that was super important to you so there's no way to know there's no way to know what would have been the best or worst things yeah a- absolutely what do you feel like was the mvp of of the items that you brought oh man i mean it's hard to say because you know like i couldn't have been out there without a sleeping bag it was minus 25 fahrenheit so a 40 degree sleeping bag was key i couldn't have done without that i mean ferrarod couldn't have done without that i mean nathan did but the amount of calories that he had to spend and he was very lucky he tried and tried and tried to get friction fire and he couldn't with the materials that he had there he happened to be in a spot that had a lot of beach trash and someone had left a cutting board and he was able to make a fire set out of a cutting board. Had he not had that, had he had my location, he might not have gotten a fire and you couldn't be out there without fire. So ferrer rod was super key. Um, you know, both my, that saw was amazing. I mean, absolutely really happy with that saw. It was my everything tool. Um, having sharpened the backside and use it for, you know, a draw knife and a machete and to reduce down wood like I would with a hatchet. I mean, made a huge difference in my crafting. My Leatherman was super key. Um, Having a belt knife, you know, had I had I to do it again, it's possible that I might have left my belt knife and just taken the Leatherman, but I do not trust a folding knife for a long term you know, wilderness situation and having a good carbon steel knife with a fixed blade with a long tang. So I can, you know, I mean, I beat the heck out of that thing. I used it as a chisel a ton in building my shelter. Um, I used it with a baton a ton. So, and also a belt knife, you know, like a, a fixed blade knife is so comfortable to hold compared to a Leatherman or a folding knife, no comparison for carving and that kind of thing. And that was a Mora Knieve, right? Um, what I ended up brought, bringing was a Mora. Yeah, that's not my standard knife, but um, but I brought like a bigger, heavier duty Mora with a plastic handle out there. It was carbon steel, though, not stainless. I love those things. They're they're cheap. They're a great knife. Yeah. They're just incredibly practical. I, I give them away as gifts all the time. Yeah. Um, they're just a great knife to have, especially for the value. Totally. Yeah. You know, I carry like a beautiful hand forged wooden handle, really nice knife on my belt all the time. But for out there, how I was going to be beating it up. And yeah, you know, a heavy duty Mora was totally the way to go. So all of those, you know, also a cook pot. I couldn't have been out there without a cook pot. That was how I hauled water. It was how I cooked food. It was how I stored food. Not that I had very much to store very often. So Yeah. Like, I don't think I had an MVP because my life depended so much on so many of the things there, you know, like had I had to go without paracord or fishing line, I think I could have versus I don't know how I would have gotten by without my sleeping bag and cook pot and one at least cutting edge. Um, but it would have been hard. You know, I was thinking that I could use spruce roots for cordage um, or plant fiber, but there was almost no plants out there where I was. There were like two fireweed plants in my entire location. It was all bare rock and sphagnum bog, you know, thick, thick sphagnum moss. So the spruce roots, you know, there was no soil for them to be growing in. So it wasn't like I could collect long spruce roots. They were crazy kinked up winding between granite rocks. 
you know? So it's just such an extreme environment. And I have really good skill set for making do without modern gear in most of the environments that I spend time, but I had never lived in the Arctic or anywhere near that extreme. So all of my items were incredibly key. How pissed were you at the foxes? <laughs> I mean, pissed isn't the right word, right? Because, they're because I'm the interloper. I'm taking their rabbits. They should be pissed at me. But that was freaking hard. I mean, it's one thing <laughs> not be eating a lot of food and to be having a hard time trapping. But when you're trapping and something is taking your food and you're starving, that's really intense. That's really fresh. I mean, and those foxes, I mean, there were other things too. There were lynx. But the, the foxes walked my trap line every day, you know, like I, not not early on. Um, and then they there were some that would come and go. Like there was one, the one that they show that like dug up one of my best trapping locations. And that whole location was just totally shot after that. Um, but it that was towards the end. So it the fox showed up in the like day between 30 and 40 and was cleaning out my traps and then and then there just wasn't much in my trap, so they lost interest and moved on. And then, it, and then I had a couple good weeks where there weren't foxes, and then they came back. Um, so yeah, that was really it was frustrating for sure. But you know, I couldn't resent a wild creature for making its living, just like I was trying to do. It just is what it is, and you know, we are but one of many, many predators out there in the wild. Yeah. And, and that's the real relationship between humans and predators is it's, it's competition. We're competing for the same resources and we always have. Yeah. So more power yeah. to them if they're smarter than me and they can get my traps. I mean, man, what amazing pickings for a fox, right? Just rabbits right on the ground, all stiff and frozen and ready to be oh, yeah. chomped up. Don't have to be chased at all. Like that's right. clean living for a fox. Absolutely. Yeah. Probably ate a little yeah. bit of fishing line and paracord, which maybe wasn't as good for them. Not as clean, but otherwise pretty good. Yeah, they'll figure it out. Yeah. It, it definitely, and of course, this is a super controversial thing and people feel differently about it. But it, it reminded me of, you know, sort of the way that cattlemen have had to deal with wolves here in Oregon, where we're losing, losing cattle to wolves on a regular basis, but we can't do anything about it because they're protected. So it's a, it's a similar frustration. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Although different in that cattle aren't native to the environment and the rabbits are. So, um, but yeah, it's a similar, similar frustration when something is eating the thing that you're depending on and your hands are tied. Yep, definitely. And, you know, cattle, cattle have been here for a long time. The area that I live in was historically Nez Perce. And when they left, they took a couple thousand head of cattle with them. So they're grazing, grazing a lot of cattle here. And it's the same type of cattle that I raise now, which are um, Coriannies. And they're, they're, they're as wild as cattle can possibly get. Cool. Wow. Any, uh, was, was, there, was there any turbulence sort of readjusting? I mean, physically, it had to be difficult coming back into food, but, you know, coming back into society as well, there's a psychological component to that. How was, how was that experience for you? Oh yeah, it was huge. That was harder in a lot of ways than the physical for me. Um, yeah, I mean, the physical was intense too, but, uh, yeah, no, it was very, very difficult. I mean, you know, I think the difference with me and so many people out there is I didn't want to go home. 
You know, it wasn't like I was just dying to go back home and willing myself to stay in the Arctic. I mean, that life out there is everything I've ever dreamed of. That was like my biggest fantasy come true to live out in the wild, off of the wild for that long in such an amazing, wild, remote place. I mean, I loved every day of it, even as I'm, you know, starving and can't poop for weeks and, you know, having... (laughs) my hands are cracking into bloody cracks that hurt to move them from the the cold and the lack of fat in my diet. You know, even with all of the discomfort, I loved it. So there was a lot, a lot of grief for me in leaving and re-entering society. And it's not that I would have wanted to stay out there forever on my own and never see another living human. I mean, I also love love my family and friends and and people in general, and that's important to me. But um Yeah. No, it was hard. It was hard leaving. I didn't want to. I mean, even, you know, they kept me for a while um, in Yellowknife and and at the the production base camp because, you know, I was I had dropped so much weight and there was a lot of health concerns there. So they wanted to make sure that I was, you know, really capable just of hefting my own bags around an airport, you know, before they put me on a plane which I, which I was, I never got as weak as they were worried that I would be, but you know, I was pretty physically affected. Um, so, but I still like, I, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave the Arctic. I became very attached to the place and the region. And, um, also it was really, really hard for me to get back to where I had to wrap my mind around numbers and schedules and logistics and telephones and computers, you know, after just engaging with, with wild things for so long, I just hated computers and phones and the idea of expectations on me, you know, after like making every choice in the world for myself for months on end, having no one to answer to and no responsibilities, being back around people with expectations of me and having responsibilities was really, really hard. And yeah, communications were really hard, not face to face. That was great. But talking to people on phones or email and computers, it took me months to want to do it. And I, and then once I was comfortable doing it again, there was a lot of grief in that because there was a part in me that felt right about not wanting to do that. You know, like this life that we're living, this is what's unnatural. The life I was living out there was the life that I evolved to live. It was the most wild and free and natural and human and animal I've ever been. And I didn't want to let that go. So yeah, huge adjustment. And like I said, lots of physical adjustments too. And those were hard, but they weren't nearly as hard as, as the mental emotional parts. If there's another redemption season, will you go back? I would love to, um, you know, like it's impossible for me to say for sure, because who knows what might be happening in my life at that time or what the conditions of that would be. But no, it's something I think about all the time. I would love to go back. I would be, I would be there in a heartbeat. Um, yeah, it's definitely one of the most amazing things I've ever done and experiences of my life. And I, I long for it every day. Is there any any parting advice that you would like to give to to women or to anybody else who might be on the the precipice of a of an adventure or of a challenge like this? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just really, you know, what I didn't want to have happen and definitely has happened some from doing the show is me being put on a pedestal and like this thing like, oh, look at this amazing thing that this person did or these people, you know, the other participants that set them apart from the common person. And my my message is we are all capable of this. This is what the common person is made for. This is our shared human history. And you will never feel so empowered, so alive as when you put yourself in those situations where you get to feel that, where you get to feel your own capacity and where you get to really meet a challenge. Wow. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And I want everyone on the planet to get to have an experience like I did out there. And, you know, if they choose, I know there's a lot of people who would never want to do it, but I just, I think it's so enriching and wonderful. And yeah, I would love everybody to have it. And I absolutely want women to know that they are a hundred percent capable of all of the wilderness living and experiences that they might want. And uh, yeah, just really to believe in yourself because you just never know what you're capable of until you're out there putting it all on the line. And I have so much more belief in my own capacity now than I did before. You know, I mean, I felt good about myself and my skill set before, but having the chance to really prove it to myself and the world is amazing. It's been amazing. Well, I think that you're a great role model, and I want to thank you for all the information that you've given us here today and and for putting yourself out there on the show. I think that's that's really bold, and, and you did a terrific job, and it, it was fun to watch. Thanks so much. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time here on the show. Where can people... Find out more about Buckskin Revolution and about Wania. Yeah, great question. So there are all kinds of ways to learn more about me and be more involved in what I'm doing. So I have a website, buckskinrevolution.com, and I have a mailing list on there. So if you sign up for that, then you get, you know, I usually don't put them out very often because I try to limit my computer time and there's a lot of computer needs of me right now. But I send out I send out notices about what I'm up to, things like my books as those come close to publication, things about my courses, both online and in person. Um, I have a Patreon membership. And right now, the the vast majority of my funding for all of my projects and my YouTube channel is all through Patreon and patrons get to be more involved in what I do. They get to see things like the video of podcasts that I do, exclusive content, more regular newsletters. So they're much more involved in what I'm doing as well as getting, you know, discounts for my courses and occasional giveaway raffles and um, Buckskin Revolution merchandise like Buckskin tools and that kind of thing. So that is a great way to be involved with and support what I do. Um, also, my online courses and my in-person courses are a great thing to check out. And I have one book project that is very close to fruition and several more. So getting these skills out to people and sharing them, inspiring folks, getting people out into the wild, getting folks more connected to the wild in themselves and the landscapes around them. That's what I'm all about. So I'm bending over backwards to provide as many avenues as I can to get people plugged into all that. Well, thank you. And I will have links to all of that in this podcast description. And thank you, ma'am, very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan 
with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.